On today's episode, we're going to be talking about interoperability, and I've got a really great group of people with me today that we'd like to discuss this with. I'm Randall Whitmore, Head of Growth here at Different, and Sultan, do you want to cover yourself? Yeah, thanks, Randall. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm uh, Professor Sultan Mahmood, Chief uh, Innovation, Integration and Research Officer at the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust. Um, we're one of the largest trusts in the country that run primary community and secondary care services all in unison. Uh, and uh, rightly or wrongly, we've got a, a bit of a reputation for being a renegade trust that does a lot in innovation. And I'm delighted to be here. A uh, bit of imposter syndrome kicking in considering it's Rachel and Hassan on the other side, but uh, I'll get over it. That's awesome. Really like the term renegade as well. So um, looking forward to digging into that as we go through this. Thank you. Hassan, how about yourself? Thanks so much, guys, and uh, really great to be here. Uh, I'm currently working in digital health for the Department for International Trade, uh, supporting British companies to go international, as well as scouting for innovation to bring it home. Uh, some of the hats that I have, I'm an honorary researcher at Imperial, and I'm on the HIMSS Innovation Committee. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Hassan. And Rachel, how about yourself? Well, thanks, Brand. Uh, I'm I'm Rachel. I'm the CEO at Different. Always uh, always tricky going after uh, going after these boys with their big long list of uh, of achievements and, uh, and and the work that they're doing. So Different is uh, probably ninety percent of our of our number and our turnover is focused around health and social care. Uh, and prior to um, setting up Different, I led the patient facing transformation. Of of the uh, of the NHS, so uh, a big uh, a big love affair with NHS, uh, and a very big love affair with uh, with the subject of our discussion today, interoperability. Excellent, thanks, Rach. So yeah, interoperability is of course a hot topic again, and has always been um, when we're talking about digital health, especially in, in particular when we're talking about uh, the NHS. Uh, Rach, I wonder if you can kick us off in that case. You you started uh, with, or you really looked like you wanted to kind of get into it, interrupt for a minute there. Um, what are some of the interoperability challenges across the NHS that you've witnessed over the years? I, uh, I think the, the, the key bit for me is, um, and I've, I've said this before, but the NHS is not one organisation. Uh, it's thousands of organisations. And I think we, as citizens and patients, we often make the mistake of assuming that the NHS is, is just that one organisation. And I, I too made that mistake before I joined the NHS. And I think there's an assumption that it's easy, therefore, to join up systems and make data available easily. And the reality, of course, is that that isn't the case. So the NHS was built 70 plus years ago, with a very different population in mind. Uh, and a lot of the investments and the uh, innovation and the attempts at putting new systems in place and joining systems up all very well intentioned, uh, but haven't quite yielded the result that we're, that we're looking for. Uh, and from a patient perspective, I, I just want to walk around with my health data and I I want to almost enhance that set of data and I want to share back more and more information that I have and that I generate. Uh, and the difficulty at the minute is that um, we're not able to, to do that right now. Now. And I think um, COVID over the last 12 months, we've built more and more kind of point solutions that have solved a, a problem, a short term problem, 
right of, of this moment, um, but they, they have added to the complexity of that spaghetti junction in way of systems, data, sharing protocols, technical standards. And I, I, I firmly believe that until we solve this problem, uh, we will continue to, to struggle to, to meet the demand. And that's a really good overview, I think, of some of the, the key challenges in this space. Uh, Sultan, when we look at it from a, a local level, um, so you mentioned the, some of the work you're doing over at Wolverhampton. What does, inter- what does this interoperability challenge look like at a place level for trusts, essentially? I think it's um, exactly as Rachel has set out, really. The problems are, um, let's just break down interoperability for everybody. It's it's kind of, we we all produce swathes of data and information, yeah? And if that information can't be joined up, um, to use kind of, um, you know, good things foundation language, uh, and, and made helpful for patients, for caregivers, for relatives, yeah? Um, it's just clever people with lots of degrees kind of inputting data into kind of disparate systems. The utility of data has got to drive care processes. And this is where the NHS, despite sitting on perhaps the largest and most rich data set in the world, yeah, in terms of a developed health economy, um, uh, lags behind. So interoperability, as Rachel has set out very clearly, is absolutely essential. Now, you know, I'm not going to go into kind of fire fast healthcare interoperability services and, and kind of IL-7 and BizTalk and, and APIs and things. So that, that's kind of, you know, will to live levels will diminish really quickly. But they're all trying to they're all trying to kind of gather this data together. And there are some things that can be done at a local level. So what we've done is try to kind of create direct data relationships with care providers. So if you think about the local authority and social care services, um, general practice, community services, the trust voluntary sector there's quite a lot that can be done um, but it relies on organizations like us investing in the people kind of to make sure the ig is all right and creating integration layers so the data can be viewed and used not all trusts will have the luxury to do that and that's what rachel rachel's talking about systemization so making the right thing easy to do across a system we've done this despite the system if you like in some regard because we, we feel it's important that we act as an anchor organization but unless unless people invest the time and the effort to do it these these kind of really interesting systems that you know we are blessed with in this country are going to be theoretical kind of um, potential that's it so um all I will say is that um, the system needs to help us and the kind of regulators need to help us, but also not all organizations will have the bandwidth, the capability to do this. Because if you think about COVID, prior to COVID kicking off, 90% of trusts were in a deficit situation. The NHS was on its knees. Yeah. And for us to do this, we've done it, you know, because we're in a relatively decent position. Okay, now standards and things will be defined in terms of procurement and kind of people on the framework. Yeah, but that's not to say that there isn't much more work to do. So I'll, I'll stop now because um, um, I can tell, I can see Hassan's chomping at the bit. Yeah, of course. Um, and thank you for that. That's a really, really good insight into some of the things you're seeing. Um, so Hassan, if we, we move over to looking at the international view of this, you know, are there any countries that are having similar issues as the UK and are there any that are doing well that we could learn from? Um, the first point is that I agree completely with my fellow speakers and panelists. The, the problem is that we're all on the same journey. Whether you're the US and the UK or a, a low middle income country, you're going to end up in the same kind of direction. So, In some senses, a lot of countries look at the UK's journey and say, they ask us, can you tell us what you did wrong? so that we can avoid those roadblocks. 
And my career is the story of how we've done interoperability wrong. Like I used to be a social worker in Hackney working for older people and getting data out of those systems made no sense. And we'd go to meetings in the local authority. And I remember we were looking at alcohol problem, alcohol stats, and there were more zeros and blanks than there were anything else. Like there, there wasn't anything. So how do we get information together to make decisions was a real problem. And I eventually moved over to, to Bart's where I was there when the Cerner rollout went wrong. And, and I could see that all the systems weren't working. And I would walk around wards trying to get paper notes. Right? That, that was my role in informatics. I've seen this doesn't work. We, we were at NHS Commissioning Support for London, which was 31 of the 32 at the time, PCTs, right? So we were trying to grab data from all of them and put them in. And that was okay when we were doing SUS-SEM, so to use some technical language, but not SUS-PBR, because then they needed more processing and more information and IG issues. So it just got, it got difficult every step we took. And I kept hitting those roadblocks. So when I look at what's going on in Taiwan and South Korea and other countries, I despair because I wonder if they could possibly learn from the experience. And, and I'm really glad that position I have now at the Department for International Trade enables me to go and have those conversations. So the long story short is there's an EMR, electronic medical record adoption play all over the world, people saying, you've got to get more EMRs up. But because they race to do that, they end up with interoperability issues because the vendors lock them in and they don't think about all the other systems. So take Great Ormond Street, for example, right? Perhaps our most digitally enabled hospital uh, with, a, with a nod and a nudge and a wink to Sultan, of course. And when they had more than 400 systems, they were thinking, how are we going to do all of this? Which is why they went with the EPIC deployment. It's why Beverly Bryan is working so hard at Guy's and St. Tommy's to make sure that the EPIC deployment goes across different sites. You know, they've had the merger with the Brompton. And that's why Manchester's gone with that. Now, this isn't me celebrating Epic. It's just saying that everyone really just knows that all of the multiplicity and fragmentation of what they've done hasn't worked. So the race to digitization has been in a fragmented way. You end up with some success, then you realize you've caused more problems. And it feels as almost as if in order to break that leg again and put it back together, you've got to remove all the bandages. And, and we just keep putting bandage over bandage over bandage you just can't get to the problem that's how it feels like to me internationally amazing and a really good insight into um some of the the great progress that's happening around this as well i'll just open it up i guess a bit more on that topic around some of the ways in which um some of these challenges can be solved um so anyone obviously feel free to shout out on this but you know what is the the fundamental first step that needs to happen in certain areas to ensure that we are improving interoperability across the system I'll, uh, I'll jump straight in there, Rand. So I don't think it's a technology. Um, I think the technology side of it's been solved a while ago, uh, and we're sitting on a boatload of data. I think it's uh, I think it's about organisations, organisation change, and it's about sharing and and working together. Uh, and it's interesting listening to listening to to Hassan. I I too started out in social care, uh, and I remember looking at social care records in uh, Waltham Forest which is where I started and and I could not fathom for one minute how that was going to link into NHS records and lo and behold 20 years on 
it probably still isn't. And and I guess the the, the bit for me at the minute is is about encouraging the organisations that have the responsibility to really look at the the constructs around them to make this a reality. And the the technical bit is the easy bit. Easy for me to say I'm not an architect, but it is. But it it is absolutely about the appetite. It's about organisational change, uh, and it's about sharing the uh, you know the 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 initiatives, the ways of working, and and getting a you know consensus around it and making it happen. It requires people to be brave uh, and to get their head above the parapet and uh, and and get motoring. Uh- on, on that note, can I come in, Rand, just to say that the, the answer to extend Rachel's thinking is Sultan. And forgive me for embarrassing you like this, but we need more people who've got the right ideas with the leverage and the elbow room to make those changes and connections between organizations. To have a position within an organization to say, look, you can buy this system now, but it must do these things. Otherwise, it gets in the way of wider corporate vision. And unless you have those kind of ideas with those people pushing them, you're going to end up with more of the fragmentation, more layers of uh, makeovers and do-overs and hoping that we can sticky plaster our way to the next crisis. And I tell you what, it's not going to work. In some ways, and I don't want to sound um, like I'm making fun of things when I say we need to burn things down, there is going to be a point where you just have to start again if we keep going in this direction. It's getting to the point where we aren't making the best of things for patients, for our staff, um, our workflow, our patient waiting lists. You know, if we are going to do this reset, and COVID has given us the opportunity for a reset, we need to take advantage of that now. And that's why the NHS Digital Academy and so many other things have been focused on the people with the right ideas and the right networks to support each other. And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the NHS Digital Academy asks people to go on residentials, to walk away from their cultures of the organisations, <clears throat> to enter a new culture, if you like, and take some of that culture back into their organisations. And, and that's why I point to people that I see in the system who are going for it, and Sultan is one of those people. Yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll come in. I, I think, I think what, I, what I would say is that given... We've we've come through a bit of a, a, a torrid time with with COVID, and as many many people will have seen, the threshold for trying stuff that's different, uh, particularly around the data space, has kind of been lowered. You know, because clinicians have felt the need, and caregivers um, in social care and and the voluntary have felt the need to kind of see their clients and patients and citizens. Um, um, people are more permissive, if you like. There is a cognitive framing, Rachel. Ray, I get completely what Rachel. There is a cognitive framing, and Hassan, it plays into your point as well. It's the it's the people around the tables, around the organisations at, at a local level that ultimately will do the things. Because as Rachel said, uh, you know, NHSD can mandate whatever interfacing you know that, that that's needed for someone to be on a procurement framework or whatever. But unless people have the mindset to kind of say, look, we need to kind of knock the data together because we are sitting on a boat full of data to kind of help clients, we're, we're not going to get there. I'm opt- I'm a natural optimist. So given given what we've seen um, here locally and and many many places up and down the country, there are people who are responding more positive than they would have 12 months ago. Yeah, so that kind of permissiveness has increased. The technology, has, as Rachel has said, has always been there. It's it's the cognitive framing that we've got to get right. And conversation 
situations like this and kind of you know practical issues people you know people you know the narrative is it's data it belongs to the clients it belongs to the patients it's it's a kind of crown asset how do we kind of safeguard it and well actually we do need to safeguard it, but the, our duty is to provide better services and for the taxpayer to get the biggest bang for their buck and the, and the people who provide the care, the most important people, um, whether doctors, nurses, social care workers, voluntary sector uh, people, whoever, they've got to have a better experience and, and use the technology that they've got available. And at the moment, they're, they're not. Um, and it, it's the conversation can be moved on if we get the cognitive framing right. What, how do we need to think differently? It's not me, it's not individuals, it's kind of as a system, what needs to happen? Uh, so my mum always talks about this because she, you know, she, 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 uh, she likes anything to do with radioactivity because that's what she studied, yeah? But the background radiation for this, if you like, the culture around kind of interoperability and data has got to be right. And that's the bit I think we're still struggling with. Um, I'll stop there. And that's really great uh, to hear some of the different kind of starting points and, and areas that need to be addressed in order to solve some of these issues. Um, and thank you, everyone, for pitching in there. That was really great. Kind of looking internationally again, Hassan, um, you're leading on the first 100 work with Department for International Trade. I'm curious to know well, if you can share a bit more about that and how um, some of the work that's happening there could be helping solve some of these problems on an international scale and you know whether or not there are any kind of examples that you might be able to provide from some of the suppliers in there that, that are helping solve some of this stuff. Uh, thanks Rand and congratulations to Different for being one of the first hundred companies. Um, the, genuinely really well done. Um, the first hundred is a labour of love and it came from an idea and, and it, this is a really weird thing to say but when I first started at the DIT I'd get questions from embassy staff and we have commercial teams in more than 100 embassies around the world. And they say, do you know a company that does immersive tech, you know, VR and AR, um, training for surgeons under stress, and they also want to work in Singapore? And I would be expected to not only know those companies exist, but also have a relationship with them that I would be able to know where they wanted to go. And I rapidly realized there's no way of doing that unless I did a piece of work where I went out and interviewed lots of companies. And there's some estimates that there's a, you know, thousands and thousands of health tech and digital health companies in the UK. So I had to be very careful how I did the discovery. You know, I went out to the ABHI, I went out to NHS Digital, and I worked out with um, Scottish Development International, European Connected Health Alliance, which companies I should be going for. And of course, I looked out for leaders in their fields, and it helped that Rachel was already on our radar. So when we were speaking to companies, we were looking for a couple of things. First, are you going to be easy to work with? You know, if you're the kind of person that's going to miss a phone call with the Brazilian Ministry of Health because you woke up late, that's a problem, right? It's a problem because I can't have our relationships burnt, right? <clears throat> and from Whitehall, we can only say, because we can't do due diligence on you, we can do a commercial validation. So I'm looking for innovation because I'm up against the Israelis. I'm up against the Swedes and the Finns and the Americans and their commercial services. And they're trying to win contracts for their companies too. So I can't go out with a Me Too company. I need to go out with someone who's got some, something that's really substantial. And then I'm looking for something that proves that they've done well. Maybe they've had Invate UK grants if they're a bit early on. You know, maybe they're a spin out from a good university. They've got lots of publications. Or if they're more mature, have they taken big contracts, for example, from NHS Digital or Public Health England or the World Health Organization? Those are the kind of things I'm looking for 
for and, and different ticked huge numbers of those boxes um, and and of course we had a great time when we went out to arab health we took out british companies introduced them to people and made sure that we've got them in the pipeline so the first hundred really is a codification of two and a half years of work at the department for international trade and some of those companies would in your mind perhaps be quite quite simple areas you know electronic document management system right you're thinking, but is that really the most innovative thing? And I thought, well, what if I had an island or the north of Kuwait, and they said, set up a healthcare system. Could you do it with these 100 companies and the 25 wants to watch? And that's why there's such a variety of companies. Uh, no offense to Babylon, I'm just using them as an example, but I didn't want 20 clones of Babylon. Right? I wanted to make sure that we had some good variety. Uh, so when it comes to interoperability, every single one of those companies need, needed to also be in line with the direction of travel. Are we talking about prevention? Are we talking about empowering citizens? Are we talking about using the cloud? Are we talking about using future technology? Or are you gonna create problems? And if you're gonna create problems, you're not in the 100, essentially, right? So all of the companies generally would be in line with interoperability. One comes to mind, they're called X-Lab systems, right? They come out of Leeds. And, and X-Lab are, are brilliant because they're about laboratory interoperability. Because one of the problems you have is trusts don't necessarily do their own lab work. They send it to labs. But as it gets sent to a lab, by the time it gets there and comes back again, the patient's worried, you know, the diagnosis is delayed. What if you can make an interoperability network across the whole country? And that's what XLAB do. And they've got 100% of England, 100% of Scotland, and I think 95% of Wales, and they're just moving into to Ireland. That's the kind of interoperability that I want. I wanna make sure that we're connecting things. And if you look through the 100, you'll see that all those companies are in line with that vision. Um, one small company there, and I say small because you've got some big players there. You've got your human, you've got TPP, you've got some big companies in that. But a smaller company called Patient Source, very, very clever company. Um, it was a, an emergency medicine clinician who got fed up of using paper and decided to learn how to code and made his own electronic patient record. And he did it with the most advanced technologies that he can find, you know. Then he went and put it into the Falkland Islands and St. Helena. And St. Helena Island at that time had no landing strip, had no, no way for you to fly there. So it was the most remote island you could find. And with a satellite phone and a Raspberry Pi and their software, you could run a clinic. And that's the kind of thing I was looking for. So some good British ingenuity. Uh, I hope that um, gives you some flavor of what we were trying to do. That's really awesome to hear. And I love hearing stories like that of, um, you know, sort of startups and new innovations that have just come out of some some really creative thinking um, and really, really good to hear, uh, Hassan. Um, I wondered then, uh, so you mentioned a, a couple of familiar brand names there as well, of course, um, in our space, one of which was um, Babylon. Um, and I believe uh, Wolverhampton are doing some interesting work with those guys in addition to, um, I think, Scent Signs, another one um, that was mentioned quite recently. Sultan, it would be interesting to hear, you know, around some of this stuff, what are some of the innovations within um, interoperability that you've been experimenting with or where have you seen some real um, good successes with uh, anything that's out there at the moment that, that it could be breaking the mould, as it were? I think... I think um... I think we start off um, as trying to be really clear on the problem we're trying to solve. So we know that if you look through our population um, in a bit of detail, and this is well known and probably relevant to both health systems, but 
the number of people who have multiple comorbidities and are kind of say 65 plus is going to double in the generation. Yeah, the average healthcare costs of those individuals are significantly higher than um, than than you or I who are reasonably fit and well. As as the complexity rises, there are more and more people involved in that care, however that care may look or support. Yeah, as there are more more people involved in that care and support, there are more systems at play. Yeah. As there are more systems in play and there's more data generated, interoperability becomes a really, really big issue. So one of the things we do, and we, we did this with Babylon, we, you know, we're doing this with Sensine and Microsoft and, and a whole range of other systems. We've got a quite a long list of kind of collaborators. We do kind of talk to them out around our understanding of the problem. So around about 1988, Chapel Wagner kind of published the, 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 the complex care um, paper. It's a seminal paper. It basically says people don't move in lovely pathway diagrams that management consultants um, in their very sharp suits kind of draw. They move in a very erratic, complex way. And actually those patients, those citizens, yeah, those people, most importantly, um, uh, need to be cared for in a joined up way. And all the reforms since kind of, you know, 2010 onwards have been trying to do the same thing as in integrated care, joined, joined up care. So the what hasn't happened, and I think Rachel's point is out, is that the, the cognitive framing of the people around the table like myself, who are kind of in the front line trying to kind of make this happen, hasn't been right. So you want integrated care, but your thinking has got to be integrated as well. Yeah, so your systems process is governance, yeah? Uh, specifically, IG needs, needs to be. So with the likes of Babylon, relatively easy problem, large player, resources to hand, uh, they respond, they can respond very well to kind of our requirements for, you know, integration standards, interoperability standards, kind of framework standards that NHD, NHSD set, yeah? And also how they, how they kind of um, interoperate with our kind of in-house systems. Yeah, when you've got fledgling people starting, and that that doctor um, Hassan pointed out, who started Naini, um, really moves me because I have a cadre of doctors and nurses in this hospital who've all got wonderful ideas, but haven't got the understanding of how this integrates into the past system. More than things, so there's an educational piece. Yeah, and so if we can draw out that as a kind of learning, Hassan, that would be really helpful because I think it, a lot of people will pick that up and run with it because that per, a that person was given permission or, or gave permission to themselves and then found a way to, to 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 make it happen. So on a on a large scale, Randall, it's not a problem with with some of the bigger providers. It's what we've got to address is some of the innovation, and this is my lived-in experience, happens best in the smaller providers who are unencumbered by kind of you know bureaucracy. Yeah, how do we create an ecosystem for them to kind of um, um, dock into? So that's the question. So that's the question I pose back to you without asking, without answering your question fully. I could I could be in politics, you know. <laughs> no, that's a really great response, Rach. Did did you want to come in on that? Oh yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. And and you beat me to the line there, Sultan. I I thought politics may well be uh, may well see that in your career in the uh, in the future. Um, too honest, I, Rachel. Too honest. <laughs> I I I don't I don't necessarily disagree. I think the conditions need to be set, uh, and then we need to you know we need to use the ecosystem to solve the problem. The reality is, you know, a big centrally driven interoperability program is is not going to work. I think you know the standards, the adoption, the buy-in 
is the is the bit that we really need to move to at pace. I I had the the pleasure last year of interviewing the German health minister, and I asked him how he'd solved interoperability. And, and he was typically Germanic, and he said, it's the law. Uh, and I thought, that's amazing. I mean, genuinely, that is amazing. And uh, they haven't had the same challenges because it has been made legal uh, and illegal not to conform to those standards. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is the approach for the UK, but it would certainly stand us in pretty good stead because, you know, it's very black and white. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that this isn't about centrally doing something. It is about the buy-in. There's hearts and minds here as well. But, you know, we do have a technology, the fire standards that you alluded to at the outset, uh, Sultan, they're there. They could be, you know, adopted wholesale. But I think we're going to need somebody pretty brave to lead the charge or multiple people who are pretty brave to, to lead the charge uh, and make this a, a reality. And the, yes. the problem is with interoperability, it's like plumbing, you know, it's not that sexy. So it's not a patient facing service where you can stand on the stage and announce the new service. But I tell you something, it has got to be the single most exciting problem to solve across healthcare. Amazing. Now, thank you very much for that, Rach. And some really, go on Sultan. I'm just going to say, Rachel is so on the money on this. It is absolutely critical. So fire standards we deal with every day at our trust, another NHS trust. But, you know, whilst NHSD have tried to mandate it for a number of years, there are a plethora of third-party suppliers who are not fully aligned to it. Yeah? And then what happens, the way I explain it to my, you know, my kid is, it's like having to get, an, you know, those three-pin plug adapters you get from the pound shop, yeah? And then you put another one on another one, and before you know it, it's like a bee's nest. That's that's the metaphor, you know, and that can blow, yeah? So, th so that's the reality. So, you know what? The Germans, I mean, bless them, they make great cars. But you know what? There is something to be said about, you know, not only mandating it, but there is, there is something we've got to do around the hearts and minds piece and, and make it. Rachel, why can't we make it sexy? So you know the, the old adage about the chap who's... Um, kind of mop in Cape Canaveral and say, what do you do? Because I put the man on the moon. So the person who's kind of sorting out interoperability is kind of absolutely meeting patient need. And and, and I, I agree. I think it's it's the message, isn't it? And God forbid, it might be a bit of marketing and a bit of PR, things that perhaps are not particularly uh, well-known services in the, in the NHS. But the bit that we always forget is it is outside of the UK, probably one of the single best known brands in the bloody world. So whilst the rest of the world trades in on the NHS, you know, we should do ourselves a favour and start to, you know, start to do exactly the same. It's it's funny because the more we talk about it, the more I feel if ever there was a job to get me to return to the NHS, it would be interoperability. Right, so, right. Uh, well, let's have a chat then. I don't... <laughs> I, I kind of I couldn't help myself, but there we uh, there we go. What a loss it is that we've lost you from the NHS. That's the first thing I'll say. I, I think like everybody who's worked in the NHS, Sultan, you know, I, I will absolutely be back at some point. Uh, and, and of that, I've I've always maintained. Uh, and, you know, I, I look forward to the, the challenges that I'm sure we'll be laying ahead at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the values and the leadership, Rachel, that comes across and, and actually knowing knowing your onions as well. But the values and leadership piece, the, the right level of values in the NHS is really important now as we go into this kind of digitization agenda. Because whilst we want to do all the clever stuff, we need the people with the right heart and mind. 
kind of leading that charge. And that's really important to, 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 to the patients and to the citizens we serve. Definitely. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. So on that note, I think we'll close out our episode and it was a really fascinating discussion. And thank you very much, everyone, uh, for taking part in today. And yeah, we'll see what comes from our future episodes. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks all. Have a good afternoon. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Hassan. Thank you.